Please remain standing, if you will, and open your Bibles, turning to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, excuse me, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word given to us, quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word that will never fade or fail or fall away. Your word that will do its accomplished purpose. And so we pray that you would do that in our hearts today. Cause us to hear your word to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, I've been waiting 25 years to use this illustration. (laughs) And the problem with that is, uh, I don't know that it's really that great of an illustration. but I remember when I was in the Navy, uh, this, uh, what I observed, something happening, I don't think it's unique to the Navy, I think a lot of people in the military see this, that when you take uh, 5,000 people and put them on a ship, 5,000 people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educations, different religions, uh, and you put them all on the same ship, and you put them all in a common uniform, and you teach them kind of a new language, new terminology, and so forth, there can be the potential for great good from that. You can accomplish the mission. That's why all that's done, is to carry out the mission. But there is something else that happens that I described as the Tower of Babel effect when I was in. And thankfully, um, Thankfully, I was on shore duty in Hawaii during my time in, and I didn't have to go out to sea and experience this except for a very short time, just a few days. But I saw it, and I heard it through the stories of those who had experienced it, that there was a certain sharing of evil. And what I mean by this is good kids from good homes and good backgrounds were suddenly exposed to all of the shared experiences and things that everybody else was in a very compressed way. And it, had, it was viral. 
Uh, it just had this way of affecting and effecting, making it very difficult for believers to stand strong in their faith. And then when you introduce that kind of experience uh, to new countries and new ports, the same, bringing the same effect in. Well, it just it reminded me of the Tower of Babel, and so I've thought that, but I've never preached to the Tower of Babel before, and so that's why I tell you that story. I don't know if it's helpful or not, uh, but uh, that was what it always made me think of, was the Tower of Babel, and that's what's happening at the Tower of Babel. You have a, a people who, the Bible says they had a common language, they all had the same words, they shared the same words, and what God observes, that's recounted to us as if God observes anything, um, but what is noted to us here in the passage is that nothing would be impossible for them. And so that could have been a good thing, but unfortunately, uh, as we see, and it's already been the pattern so far in Genesis, hasn't it? We've already seen this pattern, this tendency to uh, go after evil. We saw it in Cain, we saw it in Lamech, we saw it with the Nephilim, we saw it with all of those in the days of Noah. Noah alone was found to be righteous and so forth. And then as we looked at the genealogy last week in chapter 10, and that's what's actually describing here that this thing that occurs at the Tower of Babel. So what happens at the Tower of Babel chronologically precedes what we looked at last week. So we're, we're, we're kind of having a flashback here uh, of the scattering that is then described. Even in that genealogy, we saw Nimrod. Remember him? Bugs Bunny, Nimrod? Okay. Uh, those who were here remember that. And that pattern of continuing to seek glory for self, to make a name for himself, to be self-sufficient. That's what Nimrod was all about. And we have modern terminology for the same kinds of things. Glory today is known as marketing or branding. A name for oneself is known as a legacy. Self-sufficiency is often called independence. These things are not necessarily bad things. They can be very good things. We want our kids to grow up to be independent, not circling back around every so often and being dependent. Um, we want to leave a legacy, right? We, we, we want our lives to matter for something. But the problem is they become evil when they are pursued in rebellion against or even just ignoring our Creator. And that's what happens at the Tower of Babel. But we can't, we can't go through this story without making it very personal. We need to keep this story personal. Otherwise, it ends up just being this thing that happened far off back in history. The battles that they fought against pride are the same battles that you and I fight today. There's nothing new here. This is all stuff that we can relate to. Our hearts are idol factories, is what Calvin said. And good things that would be good to, to legacies and making a difference and all these kind of things can easily get turned into idol worship um, when we fail to recognize who God is. So Moses, the author of Genesis here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is bringing this story of Babel, placing it right here at this point in this genealogy that's going to continue next week. Uh, through the rest of chapter 11, to help us understand something very important. And that is, man's tendency over and over again, even in this very short history of mankind so far, we haven't gotten very far in history, have we? 
I mean, we're, we're, we're in Genesis 11. Now, I know it's been since March since we started Genesis, and, uh, and it feels, feels longer, but we're not very far into history. And we already see this pattern, this tendency. This is what Moses wants us to see, that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The psalmist said that in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Uh, Paul captures that in Romans 3, repeating it. But that's not all that Scripture is teaching us here. It's not all bad news. There's some good news here as well. The gospel's here, and I hope that we can see this. Paul would say it this way in Romans 5, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. And even here, we see that God is not going to allow His creation to travel too far down the road of redemption or down, down the road beyond redemption. In other words, it, with each of these episodes that I've described where man has kind of gotten off the rails and looking, continuing to move through history, it's as if the, 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 the plan's going to get ruined. The plan for redemption is going to get thrown off, that it's not going to happen. Over and over again, the plan seems to be like it will be thwarted, and it never is. So even in this judgment, we see God's protection. His judgment comes in the confusion of the languages and scattering them, and yet even in his judgment we see grace, because it is a gracious thing to prevent someone from spiraling downward into the grave. We know this as parents, don't we? Sometimes our kids don't get it, but sometimes the discipline that we do is trying to stop them from messing up anymore. You know, that you continue to see them trip and trip and trip, and so you finally pull something away from them, or you put, you know, we ground them or, or, or whatever. Why? Because we're trying to stop them from continuing to sin. Now, they just feel the, the, the pain of discipline, but we know that we're lovingly preventing them from sinning further, and God does the same thing here at the Tower of Babel. It's something that we can easily miss, but God's judgment isn't simply punitive here. It is a prevention from them continuing in evil. Even further, the scattering that takes place was according to his will. What had he told Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth, right? Scatter, fill the earth. And then when Noah comes out of the ark, he gives them the same command. And what are they wanting to do here? Lest we be scattered, they want to build a city and make a name for themselves. See, from the scattering would come all nations, tribes, and tongues, from which God would call out one man, Abraham, to form a nation for himself, and that from that one nation would come the promised one, the Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah. His work of redemption would be for the people, though, of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what we read together this morning in Revelation 7 that looking forward to that day when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would worship Christ. And we see it in the Great Commission as well, that Jesus gave His followers, go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations. So there is that command to go and take this gospel, this good news to all nations. That's our task today. That's what we've been left with. We've been left with getting all people to hear about the faith to respond in faith, and to walk by faith. So beyond the trajectory of the promise of redemption, which of course we continue to see through Genesis, 
there's also a lot for us to learn here in this story of Babel. So let's begin to unpack it. There's two main acts in these, verse, these, these nine verses. The first four describes what man is up to, and then the last five verses describe how God responds. So what is man up to? Well, beginning in verse 1, we see that the whole earth had one language, the same words. And they migrated from the east and settled. Again, instead of filling the earth, they settled in verse 2. And then they come up with a plan. Come, let us, they say. Let us build a city. Let us uh, build one with a tower that goes up to the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. And let's avoid being scattered. That was the four things that we see. But it's verse 4 that shows us what the main motivation is behind all of this. It is, let us make a name for ourselves. That's what's driving them. Rather than obeying God to fulfill what he had told them to do, to to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, they wanted comfort, they wanted ease, and they had a healthy dose of wanting to have a good name for themselves. Does that sound too far off for many of your hearts? I mean, my heart, this is me right here. You ask me what I want, uh, give me comfort, give me ease, and let people like me or think something of me. Yeah, that's, that's the tune of my heart. Now, you've, you know, there, there's a, 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 you may just be totally disappointed. Hope you didn't think too highly of me. That, that, that's, that's a sinful heart right there. Wanting other people to think of me good things, to like me, to respect me, wanting to be, comfort, uh, be comfortable, wanting ease in life, and yet this is not what we've been called to. This is what the, ta- the people of Babel wanted. The pride that resides in all of our hearts, it's there. It may not look like my pride. You may have a different uh, tune in your heart, uh, but we all have it. It comes in the form of, if you're like me, I want people to like me. That's my thing. I'm a, I'm a man pleaser. Uh, other people want people to fear them. They, you know, they, they have this thing where that's what, what, what makes their heart sing, is for people to be afraid of them. Other people want respect, or they want people to think that they're great, uh, to be in awe of them. We could add to this list. We could make the list longer. There's enough there, though, to get our minds uh, around this, that in the Tower of Babel, we're talking about us. That's what's going on, not only at this point in history, not only in our day in history, but it's been going on throughout history, the same pattern. We saw this in Cain. We saw it in Lamech. We saw it in Nimrod, which is this story now in the Tower of Babel. And even as we move forward, we see it repeated throughout history over and over again. We see it in a large scale in our own day, politics, corporations. We see these things happen, but we see it close to home as well. We see it in our own families. We see it in our own jobs and our own communities. People motivated by pride who want to make a name for themselves. This is Babel. So how that is reflected, though, in the account of Babel, beyond their words, let us make a name for themselves, is in this tower that they're trying to build as well. The tower is a literal tower, but it's also symbolic of what they're trying to do. The pride that is displayed in their words, let us make a name for ourselves, is demonstrated that they want to build a tower where? that reaches up to the heavens, right? They're trying to do something that is connected with God, a God, or something God-like. Now, the tower was likely a ziggurat, 
you've studied about those in old world, ancient world history, that kind of thing. This is, many of them have been found in this region today. Made out of bricks instead of stones. They didn't have a lot of stones in this, this part of the world, so they made bricks. They, they even say, let us harden them. Let's fa- fashion them by fire, probably in a kiln. They used what is called bitumen in the ESV. It's, it's asphalt. There's abundant asphalt pits in this part of the world. So they're using this as mortar. And they build it up in a pyramid-like fashion with stairs that go all the way to the top. Now, whatever their motivation was, whether it was to go up to God or to bring him down or some other uh, mindset, the, the, the bottom line is they were intent on making up their own rules of worship. They had their own ideas. They wanted to call the shots. In other words, they, they wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to be godlike. They wanted to make their own rules. They wanted to be worshipped. They wanted to have a name for themselves. And nothing has really changed in our day. The same things lure, lure in our own, or lurk in our own hearts. God preserves Noah, uh, you know, judges the entire world, and then gives Noah and his family this command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then... At the time, there was some understanding of worship, even though it's not revealed in Scripture. We see the sacrifices that Cain and Abel made and God's judgment on Cain. We see sacrifices that Noah made after coming out of the ark. So there's been some, some instruction, even after the flood, about what worship looks like. And yet, they're coming up with their own version. We do the same thing. We resist trusting God. We resist taking Him at His word. We come up with our own ways to live. We question And ultimately discard his commands, we live according to our own agendas. Every time that you and I sin, we're in essence saying, I know better. We're saying to God, I know better. Every time we sin, or, and or, it's often a combination of this, we're failing to recognize his love for us. Again, as parents, this is something that we can connect with. If you've raised children, you know what that's like. You you. Your goal isn't just to have obedient children. Anybody can, you know, be forceful enough to have minions up to a certain age. You want children to love you and respect you and obey because they love you. And in the same way, that's God's desire for us, that we love and obey Him and keep His commandments. When we sin, we are doing just the opposite. So what is God's response? Look at verses 5 to 9. This language is anthropomorphic. We've already seen some anthropomorphic language where human descriptions are given to God's actions. This is in no way intended to limit God. It's given to help us who have a limited understanding, help us understand an infinite God. But there's a little bit more, I think, going on in this passage to this anthropomorphic language. I think there's a bit of satire here. A number of scholars point this out in that it mocks how this great city was not so great after all. They think that it's so great that it's reaching to the heavens, but God is described as having to stoop down almost, like he has to look through a microscope to see this thing that is so tiny. It's not that God's nearsighted. This is no great city that they're trying to build, and the tower in no way brings them closer to Almighty God. Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 3, paint a picture of what it's like when we're arrogant like this. It asks the question, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is how God sees the Tower of Babel. Man's technology and might will not save him in the Tower of Babel nor in our day. And we're warned against finding our trust and our confidence in this. And again, let's not look down our noses at the people of Babel and think they were the only ones doing this. Do we not put our confidences in the things of the flesh all the time? Uh, We put our confidence, I mean, going through the Cold War, was our confidence, were we really dependent on God or were we much more comfortable with the fact that we were getting a Star Wars anti-missile defense system or or something along those lines? Even in our our daily lives, we have this, this sense of safety and security that is detached from our reliance upon God in the things that we put the confidence in. God responds to them in verse 6 in judgment. Behold, they are one people, he says, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing, and, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not be understood, that they may not understand one another's speech. We see this Trinitarian uh, council type language of the Godhead, let us go down and there confuse their language. One scholar writes, Yahweh must, not, must draw near, not because he can't see, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. God's movement must therefore be understood as a remarkable satire on man's doing. Moses is being, he's getting a dig in here, is what it's saying. He's making a point that what they thought was so great was nothing. In the psalm, and we read it this morning in our responsive reading, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The source of their unity had been their common language, and instead of using it to praise their Creator, God charges that nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. They're going to use it for evil. This sentiment is expressed in what we've already seen. If we go back to the, to the flood account in Genesis 6-5, what did, what did God see then? The Lord saw that the same anthropomorphic language that He came down, that He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. That's what we're like. And so, in His mercy, He confuses their language to prevent their delusion of self-sufficiency. They would have only continued to spiral downward without His intervention here at Babel. The construction of the city actually halts at this point. In verse 8 it says, So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. In His judgment then, He accomplishes what His will was. That is, to fill the earth. He disperses them. And he's going to continue his plan of salvation. Nothing's going to stop him. No uh, occurrence in our lives individually or no occurrence on a grand scale is going to mean the end of the world apart from God's plan. Nothing will stop his plan. He will accomplish all of his will. So through the line of Shem, as we're going forward through chapter 11, we're going to see and come to Abram. And through Abram would come the nation of Israel, and through Israel would come the Redeemer. And then we get to this summary statement in verse 9. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Babel was Nimrod's attempt to establish a secular kingdom, a a godless kingdom, through which he would be the ruler, through which he would have a name for himself. And the word Babel was meant gate to the gods. That was what its original meaning was. What's interesting is through the biblical account, and the word for confused here, is the writer actually interposes a Hebrew word that means confused, which sounds like Babel. So again, there's some stuff that comes out here that Moses is making his point of what uh, actually happened. And I think it's ironic that we have, and I don't know what the etymology of our word is, but we got, we got a word that sounds like Babel that means confused. It's just spelled differently, Babel. Uh, I remember the kids having a, a children's CD, Babel, Babel, Babel. You know, use the English word to talk and sing about the story of Babel. The problem was not in that they built a city. The problem was the pride, the human pride that was behind it, the motivation. In other words, it was what they were worshiping. They were worshiping self instead of their creator. Mankind continues this in this prideful pattern of self-worship in our own day. Trusting in his own abilities and power, intelligence and technology, seeking a secular solution to his problem. It's the day in which we live. And as Christians, we don't have to resist the advances that mankind makes, but rather the pride that man puts in these things or puts confidence in. Isaiah 31 warns against this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. May that never be true of us, that we are a people who do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord because we've got it all figured out, because we've got it all put together, because we have all of the resources and we have confidence in all of those things that we've put in place. Our confidence as believers is in the one who is faithful and true, who created all things by the word of his power and who holds all things in the might of his hand. We were not bought at a price to make a name for ourselves, to create our own legacy. Let me say that again. We were not bought at a price to make a name for ourselves or to create a legacy. Nicholas Zinzendorf, beyond being that that's fun to say, uh, he also uh, had a great impact on the modern missionary movement. And he is remembered for some things, one of which probably most greatly remembered for a paraphrase of something that he quoted which is, the paraphrase is, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I love that. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But I, I looked this up, and it actually is a paraphrase from something a little bit longer that he said. I want to read that to you this morning. This is what Zinzendorf said. Remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen. He's speaking to missionaries. Instead, you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinders that blind you to every danger and to every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. May that be true of us, that we would be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten, all for the sake of Christ. 
The Tower of Babel gives us insight into our own hearts. This is us. As sinful humans, we are naturally geared to seek glory for ourselves. We're continually bombarded with messages of self-sufficiency and self-absorption. As soon as you turn on US-1, either direction, the billboards are coming, aren't they? Telling you what you need to be satisfied or what you need to do to be happy in life. Babel is the story that continues in our own day. It's a story marked by self-centeredness and humanism. And it's the battle that you and I fight every moment of our lives. Instead, we must come back to our Master and hear these words from Him. In Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let us lay down our lives in Christ, having been crucified with Him, so that in Him and in Him alone we can see our ultimate treasure that is Him and can sing together, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Be thou my vision, now and always. Now and forever, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our treasure. And I pray that you would continue to work in our lives, that we would, you'd, you'd peel back those layers of pride and sinfulness where we are continually tempted to put confidence in our own selves and our own abilities and our own resources, that you would peel those layers back. Help us to see that it is not us that we can be confident in, but in you and you alone. And Lord, help us also to see that there's nothing in this world that is of greater value than you. There is no treasure in this world that shines a light on you. And so do that work in our hearts to give us greater love and greater affection for you because you are worthy, worthy, worthy. So help us to see you in all of your great worth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.